your word. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, and stand with me as we read verses 15 through 17. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. For last minute sermon prep, nothing beats a simple presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to consult a commentary for that. You don't need a fancy Greek lexicon for that. We have a simple sermon with three points. One, we are sinners. Two, Jesus saves. And three, it's all to the glory of God. One, we are sinners. Every man, no matter how great he may seem, or how good he may appear, is born a sinner. And left to himself every day bears the mark of one who hates God. My favorite scripture on this comes from the hand of the Apostle Paul. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, he wrote, in which you formerly walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by our nature children of wrath, even like the rest of mankind. Having judged the world, destroying it with a deluge that shocked, terrified, and wiped away almost all of mankind, Yahweh says to Noah, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. All men must recognize that the natural dark state of the heart is in full opposition to God. And any preacher must shine a blazing light at the soul of his hearers and display that their natural affections are not for God and holiness, but for sin and wickedness. The weeping prophet cried to Israel, Cursed is the man who trusts in men and makes his flesh his strength whose heart turns away from the Lord. For the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? One of the great types of Christ in the Old Testament, as you know, was David. A man who was born lowly, yet proved to be a great shepherd, protecting his flock, a slayer of God's enemies, a man who would be shown to be God's anointed one and even a great king. 
This man, after God's own heart, knew intimately and well that men are sinners. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men, he wrote, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. The Apostle Paul would take that truth that there are none who seek after God and conclude, for all have sinned and what? You finish it. The dramaturgy God has displayed in the ark of scripture teaches repeatedly and without fail mankind is spiritually dead because of our father Adam and therefore mankind hates God. Whether the Bible is recounting the history of Israel generally or particular stories from the lives of men, this is irrefutably proven. Over and over again, Israel turns to false gods, sometimes of its own creation, but more often embracing the idols of pagans in foreign lands, seeking comfort and security in earthly thrones and armies while abjuring her covenant with Yahweh. When God brought his people out of Egypt, even while he was giving his holy law to Moses, even in the midst of deliverance, Israel crafted and worshipped the golden calf. And this was not due to some crushing despair peculiar to the wilderness. Even in the land flowing with milk and honey, in that land that their Lord God had promised them, Israel dealt treacherously with God. On every high place and under every leafy tree, false sacrifices and offerings were made again and again. Now a nation, of course, is made up of individual people. Such that it is never just the nation sinning in the Old Testament, but real, live, individual men, men who knew better. And time after time in the pages of Holy Scripture, man after man falls in love with the passions of this world, chasing things, listen to me, chasing things not worth catching, casting aside the ancient truth, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Surely Solomon was pointing the finger at his own hoary head when he wrote, all is vanity and a striving after wind. Whether David was succumbing to the lust of his eye or Solomon trying to satiate a never-ending desire for wealth and power or even Moses angrily wielding his staff at the rock, the men we think of as the most godly in Scripture are but grievous sinners. But praise God. For sinners are not left to perish in unrighteousness, nor must we face the second death for a deliverer has come from Zion's hill, and the bloody brow of Golgotha makes us white as snow. Because though point one is that we're sinners, point two is Jesus saves. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ did not simply come into this world to prove a point as some divine model for holy living and nothing more. Nor did the incarnation occur so that Christ could pronounce judgment and condemnation. 
No, the first advent of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was not for judgment, but for salvation. For I did not come to judge the world, he said, but to save the world. As Jesus says to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And why does Jesus save sinners? Well, we could say he's just doing his father's will. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's the high theology reason. It's appeal to the eternal covenant of God. But there's a truth just as profound a rock of truth with such depth it cannot be mined. A sea of truth so vast it cannot be sailed. And it's this. Jesus saves sinners because he loves us. I'm here to tell you this morning on the authority of scripture that Jesus Christ loves us. And that is hallelujah ground for God's people. In fact, Paul says that this love is such that it is the model for how... What? Oh, okay, good. There you go. Paul says that this love of Christ for his people should serve as a model for how husbands should love their wives. For Jesus loves his church so that he gave himself up for her, Paul writes. To Rome, Paul would pen, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The disciple whom Jesus loved wrote these beautiful words. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. In this, John said, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Cold days in winter often lead us to be dilatory in living out our so-called resolutions. Some of us, I'm sure, have resolutions we've already blown. This can be a season where we feel like failures, can it? It can be a time of worry. Worry about what tragedy a new year will bring. We can be disheartened about challenges and trials that we may think we see in the offing. Or some crucible in which we feel entombed in the present moment. And if that's you this morning, if you're one particularly prone to heartache, and sadness, or worry, and all other forms of self-torment, well, I have a word for you this morning. Jesus loves you. As the bride says to her beloved, behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, 
The flowers appear on the earth. The time for singing has come. For if you know him, if you know Jesus Christ, it is ever spring. For you have life eternal in him. For he saved you, not simply to spare you from the flames of hell, but that you may have life, a life eternal in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is eternal life, our Savior prayed, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God through Christ. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Dear friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, you need to. For Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you don't know him, you need to repent of your sins. You need to believe that Jesus Christ was crucified, died, and was buried. And then on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. You need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you need to come to him today. Come to me, Jesus said, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, he said, and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And here, in our text this morning... Paul's found rest. Surely he's found rest in Jesus Christ. He quite naturally considers himself the chief of sinners, this man who drove the church from Jerusalem by overseeing the murder of Stephen, this former Pharisee who had persecution in his heart and death on his lips, who bore rope or chain en route to Damascus so that he may bring those who confess Christ bound to Jerusalem, both men and women. So overcome is he with thankfulness and wonder that he sees his own salvation as serving to show the world that Jesus Christ will save anyone who believes in him for eternal life. Thus he says, I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And like Paul just like Paul, we need to be overcome by the exceeding long-suffering and patience of our Lord. We must rejoice in the unrelenting grace and bask in the overwhelming mercy of his love to save us, each of us, who upon our own self-reflection must admit every one of us, I am the chief of sinners. So first, we're sinners. Two, Jesus saves and three, it's all for the glory of God. Our salvation and the whole work of Jesus Christ is for the glory of God. In preparing for the sermon yesterday, as I considered this beautiful statement about God at the end of our text, I was reminded of the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, Sola Deo Gloria. 
And Paul ends our confession this morning with this statement to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The declaration that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and Paul's self-reflection on the great mercy shown to him in particular leads him to praise God and his glory. Indeed, our salvation, every one of you, our salvation is accomplished for God's glory. Paul writes, in, his, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul goes on, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. You were saved for the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul, having reflected on the work of Christ and the salvation of Jew and Gentile when he writes Romans, wrote in praise, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And we say with the psalmist, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And we affirm with Paul, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All things are for the glory of God. Whether it's Jesus Christ coming into the world, whereupon the angels say, glory to God in the highest. Or Jesus fulfilling the law in his life, in his works, in his ministry. Father, glorify your name, he says. Or Jesus dying on the cross, for he said upon his betrayal, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Or Jesus being raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Or Jesus saving sinners. Or Jesus being exalted at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Or Jesus putting all things in subjection under his feet. Or Jesus coming again to judge the quick and the dead. All of these things, all of them, and particularly your salvation, is to the glory of God, to the praise of the glory of his grace. All men are sinners. Jesus saves, and it's all to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the perfect sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for covering our sins with the crimson blood of a Savior. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for saving us, and not simply saving us from punishment, but saving us to eternal life with you. Be with us this morning. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Will the men who are coming to participate in communion come forward?